last week was National Correction Officers Week. And I reached out to some of the officers that I know and consider friends at the Marquette Branch Prison to thank them. One of the men texted me back and he said, thank you, it means a lot. Another man said to me, it is a thankless job. Most of the officers at the prison are skeptical of the men who come to the chapel. And to be honest with you, it's hard not to blame them. It's easy to turn to God in prison, isn't it? And then forget all about the Lord Jesus when you leave. It's very easy to do that. Well, why would I go to the prison as I did two Sunday nights ago? Well, it's because I have total freedom of the pulpit. I have no restrictions on what I preach from God's Word. And if there's one thing I know, it's God's Word can change I cannot change anyone, but God can. Amen? Amen. God can. Today, in our series on the life of Joseph, we come to chapter 38, which focuses on Joseph's older brother, Judah. Now, you may remember last week that Judah's speech in chapter 37 was the most disgusting in the entire episode. Judah showed himself to be one of the worst of all of his brothers in selling Joseph into slavery. And today as we come back to chapter 38, we're going to see the continuing corruption in the heart of Judah. I'm going to be honest with you. Judah belonged in the Marquette branch prison. He really did. But then something very interesting happens. Chapter 38 covers about 20 years. Enough time for Judah's three sons to be born and grow up to marriageable age. Jew Joseph met his brothers for the first time after they sold him 22 years later when he was 39. So as we come to the end of the events today, they are very close to the time in which Judah will see his brother Joseph unrecognized for the very first time. You know what Judah does? He offers to be Joseph's slave. And he is more concerned about his father and his younger brother Benjamin than he is himself. And the speech that he gives in Genesis 49 is so moving, it brings Joseph to tears, and he has to leave the room. And we have to ask this question What changed Judah? Wouldn't it be better to say, Who changed Judah? Because we know the answer God changed this morning, as we come to Genesis 38, the message is very simple, how God changes us to become fruitful. If you are a Christian and you're not living a fruitful life, 
God will work to change you. Because God's purpose for us is to be fruitful, and if we are not fruitful, He will work to change us. And He did that in you. Now we're going to see two things today in this passage. Number one, we are going to see that sin always takes us downward. It always takes us downward. And then secondly, we're going to see how God, at the end of it all, works to change our life. And so let's take our Bible, shall we, and let's turn over to Genesis chapter 38. And I'm going to ask our technician to help me with moving these slides along this morning. And let's look, first of all, and notice how sin always takes us downward. Open your Bibles to Genesis 38. And let's begin by looking at what God says in verses 1 to 7. By the way, we're in that section in our few Bibles where the chapters in the first book follow the page numbers. So you just take that chair Bible in front of you, turn to page 38, and you'll be at Genesis 38. You follow along. It happened at that time that Judah went down from his brothers. And he turned aside to a certain Adolamite whose name was Hiram. There Judah saw the daughter of a certain Canaanite whose name was Shua. He took her, and he went into her, and she conceived and bore a son, and he called his name Her. She conceived again and bore a son, and she called his name Onan. Yet again she bore another son, and she called his name Shalom. Judah was in Chesed when she bore him. And Judah took a wife for Ur, his firstborn, her name was Tamar. But Ur, Judah's firstborn, was wicked in the sight of the Lord. The Lord put him to death. Then look at verse 10, what happened to Onan, the second son. What he did was wicked in the sight of the Lord. And he put him to death also. First sin here. Well, I think it's very clear. Marriage to a non-believing spouse. As we open up the chapter, the first sin Judah committed was he married a Canaanite woman. Now, isn't it interesting that in verse two, her name is not even given. What is stressed is her origin. She was a Canaanite through and through. Uh, friends, the Canaanites were very wicked people. But evidently they had some pretty women. And that's all that Judah cared about. Now Judah knew what Abraham had said. When it was time for his son to be married, he had said to his servant, do not take from the Canaanites a woman as a wife for my son. Judah knew that. But he didn't care. He was going to do things his way, not God's way. Why is this a big deal? Well, Judah's wife influenced his sons. Did you notice in verses 4 and 5? Judah named the first one, but the Canaanite wife named number two 
and number three. Now, name means somebody is an expression of authority and obviously influence. This woman had influence over these two boys. It's very interesting. The second son, uh, the first son, his name is Er. That is the Hebrew word for evil spelled backwards. The Hebrew word for evil is Ra. It is Er spelled backwards. So when we look down in verse 7, literally it says to us, Er was Ra. Er was Ra. You know what we would say? Er was his name. And evil was his name. And God killed him because of his evil. Now, we're also told that the second son, Onan, was wicked. And so in verse 10, God put him to death. Listen, these boys had thoroughly learned the Canaanite ways of their mother. And clearly this marriage was wrong. Do you know many people do not realize that it's a sin to marry a non-believer? When I was growing up, we had a dear lady in our church who had a very, very difficult, controlling, abusive husband. Eventually, to get away from him, she had to leave the situation. She had grown up in a Bible-reading church very much like Bethel. This is what she said. No one ever told me I should not marry a non-Christian. Those were her words. I want you to see what the Bible has to say about this. Look at 1 Corinthians 7.39. A wife is bound by law as long as her husband lives. But if her husband dies, she is at liberty to marry to whom she wishes. And notice the last word. Only in the Lord. That is a very, very clear point. As Christians, we are at liberty to marry anyone that we choose, but God says they must be Christians. Now, I can hear somebody here this morning say to me, Pastor Brian, what about dating non believers? Is that okay? This is what I would say. Be very, very careful. Sometimes a non-believer becomes a Christian. But many, many times it does not work out. And here's the problem with dating a non-believer. Once you fall in love, it is very hard to be rational. Emotions begin to take over. And you begin to do everything you can, rationalize that it's okay for me to marry this non-believer. When I was in college, dear Dr. Devin said this, I never forgot, he said, don't marry someone you don't want your kids to be like. I never forgot that. Here's the safest course. Safest course is you want your kids to love Jesus like you love Jesus, then only date somebody who loves Jesus too. 
I appreciate so much that, that college student that came up here. She found Christ in the ministry of Bethel. She said to her boyfriend, if we're going to have a future together, we have to be going in the same direction. She said to him, I want to know where you stand with Christ. And he said, I want to follow Christ too. In fact, he accepted Christ right here at Bethel. I don't know who told that college student that, but she was very wise. She understood if we're going to have a future together, we have to be going in same direction. Notice next. In Judah's life, number two, showed unfaithfulness in keeping promises. Look at verse 8. Then Judah said to Onan, go into your brother's wife, he's now the second son, and perform the duty of brother-in-law to her and raise up offspring for your brother. But Onan knew that the offspring would not be his. So whenever he went in to his brother's wife, he would waste the semen on the ground so as not to give offspring to his brother. And what he did was wicked in the sight of the Lord. And so God put him to death as well. Now the custom here is what is known as the Leverite practice, uh, custom. It was practiced in the ancient Near East and it was commanded in the book of Deuteronomy. In fact, let me read for you what God commanded. The word Leverite means brother-in-law. Listen to what he said. The brothers live together and one of them dies and has no son. The wife of the deceased shall not be married outside the family to a strange man. Her husband's brother shall go into her and take her to himself as wife and perform the duty of a husband's brother to her. It shall be that the firstborn whom she bears shall assume the name of his dead brother, so that his name will not be blotted out from Israel. Now why was this so important? Well, it kept the memory of the deceased brother alive. In the ancient world, for your memory to go out of existence because you had no descendants was almost like a curse. Then it would keep the deceased brother's property in the family so it did not be lost to strangers. For the ancient world, well, their property was everything that they would inherit, and it was so critical to them that it stayed in the family. Here was the most important reason. It provided security for the widow who, without sons, would have been destitute. You know, this is the whole story behind the book of Ruth. Her mother in law, Naomi, has lost all of her sons. She's destitute. And God provides a kinsman redeemer to marry her daughter in law so that sons could be raised up so that Naomi could have security. That was a primary reason for this. Onan wanted no part of it. He didn't care for his brother's memory, and he wanted a share of the inheritance. You know what happens? When his older brother died, who now is considered the firstborn? Onan. And Onan gets a double portion. He loses it. If a child is born, raised up for his brother, you say with me, 
own hand and say, breathe your man. But look what he does in verse 9. Whenever he went into his brother's wife, he would waste the semen on the ground so as not to give offspring to his brother. He practiced an old-fashioned form of birth control. Now, this is not condemning using birth control. God is not against family planning. But what this was was a rejection of God's plan for the patriarchs and their descendants. This was not just a sin against Tamar, but it was a sin against God whose plan was that Judah's family line should continue. Did you notice here? Onan likes the sex part of it, doesn't he? He likes that part. But the responsible thing, he doesn't want to take along with it. So look at what happens. He gratifies himself sexually at the expense of his duty to Tamar, to his brother, and to God himself. And so, according to verse 10, it was so wicked in the sight of God that God killed him. Let me just apply this for just a moment. If we were to say, what would this be similar to in our day? I think it would be very similar to cohabitation. Cohabitation is sex without the responsibility of marriage. That's what it is. And God is very clear in His Word. Sex and marriage go together. And we are never to separate the two from one another. What do we call it today? We call it living together, don't we? It seems so benign in our age. What does God call it? He calls it the same thing and called what Onan did. It is wicked in the sight of the Lord. It is rejecting God's will for marriage and for family. That's what it is. And no one can brazenly reject God's will and expect that they will escape his eventual judgment. You know, as I read this, I, I think to myself, my goodness, I'm, I'm sure glad that God doesn't do this in the New Testament. But he did with Ananias and Sapphira. They lied to Peter. And God said, you haven't lied to men. Peter said, you haven't lied to men. You lied to God. And God struck both husband and wife dead. I've been reading the book of Revelation, the last book of the New Testament. Do you know? In that book, there are more fearsome and frightful judgments than any place in the Bible. You read the book of Revelation and you learn God is a God of grace, but He is also a God of judgment. And we learn that right here. Now, Judah has one more son, a, a son named Shelah. 
And notice what verse 11 says. Then Judah said to Tamar, his daughter-in-law, Remain a widow in your father's house till Shalem, my son, grows up, for he feared that he would die like his brothers. So Tamar went and remained in her father's house. By rights, Shema should now be given to Tamar. He asked this question. Does Judah have any intention of keeping this promise? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. Tamar is an unlucky woman. Don't marry her if you want to be number three. So, he lies. He lies. He's afraid the same thing will happen to the third son. So he lies to Tamar. You know what Judah should have said to Shalem? He should have said, your brothers are wicked, that's why they died. Don't you be the same. Now you do the right thing by Tamar, who has the right to have this leverage marriage. That's what he should have done. But here's what he did. He protected his son by putting a hardship on Tamar. Forcing her to wait for a promise he knew he was never intending to keep. By the way, you know what this reminds me of? It reminds me of parents whose kids can do no wrong. You know, so if there's a, a problem at school, it has to be the teachers or the administrators because it can't be our child, our child can do no wrong. By the way, is it human nature to protect our own? Isn't it? Human nature is to protect our own, even if it means harming others. Notice what Judah does to protect the guilty. Judah mistreats the innocent. He lies to do it. Let me ask you this question. Think about it. If it's easy for you to be unfaithful to God and who you should marry, is it then easy to be unfaithful to others in keeping your promises to them? What's the answer? Yes, it is. Why is Judah unfaithful to Tamar and lies to her about a promise he will never it's unfaithful to God. That's why. Notice where this all leads. Three. Sexual immorality outside of marriage. Look at verse 12. In the course of time, the wife of Judah, she was daughter, died. Judah was comforted and went up to Timnah to the sheep shearers, he and his friend Hira, the Adolamite. And when Tamar was told, your father-in-law is going up to Timnah to shear his sheep, she took off her widow's garments and covered herself with a veil, 
wrapping herself up, and sat at the entrance to Anion, which is on the road to Timnah. For she saw that Shayla was not was grown up and had not been given to her in marriage. When Judah saw her, he thought she was a prostitute, for she had covered her face. He turned to her at the roadside and said, Come, let me come into you. For he did not know that she was his daughter-in-law. She said, What will you give me that you may come into me? He answered, I will send you a young goat from the flock. And she said, If you will give me a pledge until you send it. He said, What pledge shall I give you? She replied, Your signet, your cord, your staff that is in your hand. That's like giving your credit cards and your driver's license. So he gave them to her and went into her, and she conceived by him. Then she arose and went away, taking off her veil. She put on the garments of the widow. Tamar had no legal recourse against a powerful man like Judah. The fact that he could easily send a goat as payment to a prostitute, is what he thought, shows he was a fairly wealthy man. But here's the one thing that Tamar knows. In the ancient Near East, if there were no sons to perform Levite marriage, the father-in-law was responsible to do so. He could not marry his daughter-in-law, but he was responsible to raise up a son for her. Judah has no intentions of being responsible with his third son or with himself, so Tamar tricks him. By the way, desperate people do desperate things, don't they? Only in this case, Tamar was in her legal right. Thinking that she is a prostitute by the way she is dressed, he goes into her and in his mind he is having illicit sex with a prostitute. Jude is a hard and callous man. He is a hard and callous. Look at this. Sin will always inevitably take us in a downward way. I want you to see something here that's very important at the very beginning of the chapter. In verse 1, the Bible tells us that Judah moved away from his family and went down to a town called Adullam. If you look at the map here this morning, you can see his travels. He lived in the hill country where the ground is. And he went down into the plains country, the lowland called Shephelah, which means lowland. Uh, there he went to a town called Adullam. Now why this is so significant is Shephelah was the place where Canaanite civilization flourished this region. This was a very, very dangerous move. The Canaanites were the most wicked, immoral, pagan, idolatrous people that you could imagine. 
God put them under a curse. Now follow me. This is not just a physical rule, is it? This is not just a physical rule. It is a spiritual rule. It is a spiritual rule. God had warned his people not to mix with the Canaanites. And I give to us a lesson today. I hope we will not kind of people we prefer is the kind of person we will become. Please hear this today. The friends we choose to be our closest friends not only reveal who we are, but they show what we will become. The kind of person, people that we prefer kind of person we will become. And what we discover is that this move down to be with the Canaanites is what set in motion all of the sins that followed. Many years ago, there was a Puritan pastor by the name of Charles Simeon. He's from England. This is what he said. He said, sin is a downward road. A leak may appear a small thing, yet it will sink a ship if it is left without timely repair. And Judah's ship had been taking on water for a very long time. And sunk to the depths we see in this chapter. I said to you as we began this message, that Judah belonged in the Marquette Branch prison. How many of you would say, Pastor, you nailed that one? Here's my question. Is Judah a lost cause? Should he be written off as somebody who cannot be The answer. The grace of God can change anything. And so, as we come to the end of this message, what we discover is something very, very pretty. God takes measures and changes. Those measures as a result of his grace. And all of us must hear this today. God desires us to be fruitful. That's his plan and purpose. If we are not, in his grace and mercy, he will reach down. And he will take the measures necessary to change us. But these measures are often difficult. Grace does not mean. God does not take strong measures. And as we finish this message this morning, let's look at the measures God uses. Maybe He's using them in your life right now. Number one, God lets us free what we sow. God will let us free what we sow. 
Look at verse 20. When Judah sent the young goat by his friend, the Adolphites, to take back the pledge from the woman's hand, he did not find her. And he asked the men to play his friend, the cold prostitute, who was at nine at the roadside, and they said, Oh, cold prostitute has been here. So he returned to Judah and said, I have not found her. Also, the men of the place said, No cult prostitute has been here. I want you to notice what is going on here. Tamar's deception worked, didn't it? When Judah sent his friend back, she was gone. And now what's going to happen is as the baby starts to show, Tamar is now ready to play the trump card. She would produce the items, the credit card, and the driver's license, identifying Judah, and when he was ready to punish her, what it would reveal was he was the father. By the way, don't miss this. Remember what Judah did to deceive his father. He used a garment and goat's blood. Now what is used to deceive Judah? Tamar's garments and a promised goat. You know what God calls this? Reaping what we have sown. That's what God calls this. Read with me this verse from Galatians 6. Please read it with me. Do not be deceived. God does not be mocked. A man reaps what he sows. The one who sows to please his sinful nature. From that nature will be destruction. The one who sows to please the Spirit, from the Spirit will be eternal. Judah broke all of God's other laws. This law, he could not break through. Marshall Hobbs was a pastor for many years in Oklahoma. This is what he said. Because of the natural law of seed time and harvest, the farmer knows you harvest wheat and you sow wheat. You do not sow weeds and reap wheat. God's moral and spiritual laws work the same way. You cannot sow sin and reap righteousness, or indulgence and reap health, or strife and reap peace. You cannot sow sin and reap righteousness. Or indulgence and reap health, or strife and reap peace. Are you reaping what you have sown today? It is of God's mercy. God knows if He is to change you and turn you around, He must. Let us reap what we have sown. Notice the second thing God does in his mercy. God exposes guilt, so we must admit it. Look at 
Verse 23. And Judah replied, Let her keep the things as her own, or we shall be laughed at. You see, I sent this young goat, and you did not find her. About three months later, Judah was told, Tamar, your daughter-in-law, has been immoral. Moreover, she is pregnant by immorality. And Judah said, Bring her out and let her be burned. As she was being brought out, she sent word to her father-in-law, By the man to whom these belong, I am pregnant. And she said, Please identify who these are, the singing and the cord and the staff. Then Judah, with eyes as big as saucers. Right? Identified them and said, She is more righteous than I, since I did not give to her my son Shelah. He did not know her sexually. What was Judah's main concern here? Haida could not find Tamar. It was Haida. Haida. He said, I, I don't want to be laughed at. <coughs> what will the neighbors think when they find out about this? Let's keep this secret. It's not exposed to When hypocritical people wanted to punish Tamar. She played a trump card. Oh, Judah, you recognize these? You hypocrite. Pastor Justin Dahl said this, the consequences of sin may not come immediately, but they will come eventually. And when they do, there will be no excuses, no rationalization, no accommodation. And that is true. The consequences of sin may not come immediately, but they will come eventually. And when they do, there will be no excuses, no rationalization, no accommodations. But finally, we are beginning to see a change in Judah. Look what he said. She is more righteous than I. Judah was exposed. He was caught. He could deny it. He could excuse it. He could blame someone else for it. But he admitted. By the way, there's a play on words in verses 25 and 26. He identified the items. He said, they're mine. And verse 26, he identified his guilt. He said, she's more righteous than I am. You know, someone has said guilt is like the one light on your dashboard. When that engine light comes on, and I've got a few cars like that, the engine light's on all the time, I just ignore it. <laughs> but when it starts flashing, you better not. You do. You got some big repairs. And guilt is that way. When guilt is flashing, you ignore it. You believe 
ask us all today, has God exposed your guilt? You can deny it. You can excuse it. You can spread a lot of blame around. Or you can It's of God's grace that He disposes us. Finally, God shows His right, His will is right. He always prevails. Look at verse 27. At the time of her labor came, there were twins in the womb. When she was in labor, one put out his hand, and the midwife took and tied a scarlet thread on his hand, saying, This one came out first. But as he drew back his hand, behold, his brother came out, and she said, What creature you have made for yourself? Therefore his name was called Perez. Afterward, his brother came out with the scarlet thread on his hand. His name was called Zero. Tamar has twins. And when the due date arrives, the most unusual thing happens. Sarah comes out first, and then he draws back. But before he draws back, she puts a thread on his hand, and she says, he came out first, but then Perez, his brother, came out. So the second one was born first. The first boy tried to come out. The second boy overtook him and became the first born. What did Judah try to do to Joseph, the youngest of the ten brothers? She tried to prevent him from having the rights of the first one. We'll sell him. We'll get rid of him. We'll see what will become of his dreams. What was God saying? Judah, just like the younger brother Perez, your two offspring, so Joseph will prevail. Judah, I'm God, and I'm bigger and stronger than you. I will prevail. Abraham Lincoln once said this, he fooled some of the people all the time. And all the people some of the time. You cannot fool all of the people all the time. And you cannot fool God any of the time. And if we try, God will win and we will lose. God will win and we At the end of this chapter, 20 years have passed. 
The next time we will see Joseph, Judah's brother, will be before him on the throne. And I want you to see with me what Judah says. Turn over with me to chapter 44. I want you to see how that chapter ends. Look at verse 33. These are the words of Judah. Twenty-some years later, before Joseph, before he even knows who he is. Now therefore, please let your servant remain instead of the boy as a servant to my Lord. And let the boy, Benjamin, my youngest brother, go back with his brothers. For how can I go back to my father if the boy is not with me? I fear to see the evil that will find my father. Then Joseph could not control himself before all who stood before him and cried, Make everyone go out. So no one stayed with him, but Joseph himself Judah's a changed man. And if God can change Judah, he can change him. As we close this morning, <clears throat> simple questions. Is God letting you read what you saw? Has God exposed what you have so carefully tried to keep hidden and covered? Has God shown to you that He is bigger and stronger than you are? And if you try to fool Him, you will lose. He will win. All of that is God's great mercy and grace to you. God loves you. He is trying to change you. He wants to bring you back into the path of His blessing. But you must allow Him. Make the changes he wants to make. So, however, God is speaking to you, 
However deep in sin you have gone, He is calling you back to a fruitful life. Let Him have His way. Let His grace do its work. Hear Him speaking, respond, trust, obey, follow. Get into the path of His will once again. He longs for you to be His fruitful child. Oh God, if you can change Judah, you can change anyone in this room. Grace is vast and magnificent and mighty and powerful. We submit to your hand today. In Jesus' name.